yes, it is a made-up holiday. It's not biblical. It's not rooted in every culture or the history of all civilization, but it is something that has become part of our culture and our civilization. Almost everyone recognizes it. Just try to go out to eat after we leave here in a little while. Uh, figured it would be better if we just go longer today. That way you'd miss the crowds. So maybe 1.32 would be good to finish up. Um, so maybe for you it is a day of gratitude and celebration. My mom, who's been a pastor's wife for over 50 years, does not enjoy Mother's Day. For her, it feels like a day where she's being examined and all she feels is her failures. And so it's not a happy day for everybody because that can definitely be the lens that you're seeing this with this morning. And, um, and then there's also grief because of moms who are gone or broken and unfulfilling relationships that uh, we have as kids with our moms or maybe we're experiencing with our kids. Uh, maybe grief due to other factors that many people don't even know of. And we also recognize that being a mom is a gift of God's grace. Um, it's all by His grace that we have children either through biology or adoption. Um, and not everyone has or will experience that. And that's okay too. You're not less than if you're not a mom and if you never become a mom in, in those ways. Uh, it's a day of mixed emotions. So we can be thankful in all circumstances. So even if it is this hard and heavy as well as joyous, there's a place for gratitude. And I'm trusting the Spirit of God will get you there uh, today. And we can trust the Spirit to comfort and console you in ways in which the day is hard. Uh, but we are grateful for moms, and we love to invest in moms and dads and everyone. Uh, but we want to invest also in the women of our church. And so on the back table before you leave, there's a table full of books that all look the same. Free books at Crossway Publishing provided to churches that ask for them uh, to invest in their women. So if you're a mom, if you're a lady, if you're a girl, if you're old enough to read and enjoy that resource, that book is for you. Uh, if you know somebody else in your life that would enjoy that resource, grab one for them. If someone who's a part of the crossing is not here this morning and you want them to have one, grab one for them. I would love for that table to be empty when we leave. Uh, not because we have to storm or anything like that, but because they're being used and being invested in women throughout the crossing and through the crossing to others. But let's pray together. Father, your nearness to us is for our good. We thank you for being for us and with us. We cherish this time of gathered corporate worship with our brothers and sisters we ask that you would help our missional communities to take this task seriously. We want to see this entire area saturated with the gospel. Empower us to radically reorient our lives for your glory in this city. We ask that you would help us to make disciples of those in our lives, but also our parents here at the crossing. May our times of family togetherness and family worship become and remain a priority. We thank you for blessing this church with so many godly mothers, and we pray you continue to bless them as they are a blessing to our children and other children. Help us to recognize and honor them throughout the year and invest in them and love them. We also ask for this rich and robust gospel lifestyle to make our partners at other local churches thrive, places like Auld's Chapel and Cedar Crest and Covenant Presbyterian and First Baptist Calhoun. Use all of them and us to send church planting teams throughout this nation and to all nations. We pray for the V family and their needs today. Continue to protect and provide for and prepare them for their work among the Wanchi. We thank you for healing them and ridding their home of sickness. Will you continue to bless them with deep relationships, not only for language learning, but for the prospect of sharing your good news with those who don't know you. 
We thank you for sending out the V family and the T family. Continue to heal the T family and be with them in their time of grief as they mourned the loss of their loved one, Todd's mom. We thank you for moving in and through them in Berlin to reveal yourself to Muslim immigrants. We know it is our desire to send more gospel workers to all the rest of the remaining unreached people groups in the world. And we pray for just a few of them that you've laid on our heart, that you would send workers and establish healthy churches among the Wanchi and the Aceh and the Baima and the Bonin, the Tongren, the Tibetan Jone, the Laz, the Zaza, and the Agnobi people. The nations rage and plot in vain because you are sovereign. Remind us of that. Remind us of world leaders and entire governments of the fact that you are truly sovereign in control. And even when it seems that their, their evil reign is flourishing, show yourself strong and in control and give us your peace to trust you through it all. And now take this time in which we worship you through the word and speak deeply to your hearts. We don't, Father, we don't want to just be impacted in our minds. We want to be impacted in our hearts. We don't want to just think something, Father. We want to feel something. We want to feel your love. We want to feel your truth. We want to feel the, the power, the transforming power of your gospel changing us today. And Father, only your spirit can do that. So take this time in your word and do that today for your glory among your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As you turn to 1 Peter, we're back in 1 Peter, and we'll be here for quite a while, thankfully. One of the things that maybe we cherished growing up with moms uh, was the value and the worth that they would speak into us. Not the reality all the time, of course. Maybe not the reality at all for some who are here. But for some, the relationship with mom had times in which she would say things about you, say things to you that, man, thanks, mom. That really made me believe in myself a little bit more. That made me be encouraged a little bit more. A uh, few my mom has done taxes, as most of you know, at h Block for over 30 years. And if you sit across the desk from her, you're going to have a little mouse pad with all of the grandkids. And every year we get her a new mouse pad with an updated picture of all the grandkids. So you can hear a lot about the grandkids. Not probably us as much, but definitely the grandkids because she loves to speak these affirming words of life and update her clients that she sees every year. And it's probably more fun to talk about that than it is to talk about taxes. But that's what moms can be, and that's what moms can do and as little kids some of those proud moments that we that are like driven into our memories that we really remember we did something and mom was like wow and you're like yeah wow look at me and we could just fly off of those moments now imagine if if God can do that by his grace through an imperfect vessel like our mom imagine when we hear those words of affirmation and identity and truth from him who's not inconsistent like our moms are, who's not flawed and fail, and fail at times like our moms do, but who's always saying the same thing with the same intensity, the same love, the same passion about us, to us, and in us. And this is what we have in our passage today in 1 Peter chapter 2. We use the term gospel-centered all the time around here. It can be overused, watered down, even to where it means nothing. But one of the big points of emphasis in gospel centrality is this, what we see in this passage, the indicative coming before the imperative. Who we are precedes what we do. We have an identity that God gives us, and it's out of that identity that becomes how we live. And few passages show this more clearly than 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. These verses, one of the high point passages for us as Christians, that speak clearly, powerfully, concisely, 
about who we are and why we still have breath. Chapter nine, uh, chapter two, verse nine. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So let's begin real quick with the contrast he starts with, with the word but. All the good and amazing he's about to stay, say stands in contrast to what he's just said. So look back at verse 4 where he says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by people but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture... So you have laid a stone in Zion, a chosen and honor cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So honor will come to those who believe. All that's good. But for the unbelieving, here's the contrast. The stone that the builders rejected, this one has become a cornerstone and a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word and they were destined for this. Jesus, uh, Jesse walked us through this section a few weeks back, and this section starts off these verses 4 through 6, even 7a, talking about Jesus being the chief cornerstone, the most essential and important stone uh, that we build our lives on. We are built on Him, we come to Him, and when we are born again, we become part of this spiritual building that Jesus is building, that makes Jesus known, that offers these spiritual sacrifices of worship to Him. And then everyone else in verses 7 and 8 find that Jesus is not that cornerstone. He is offensive, and they don't believe in him, and they don't build their lives on him, and they stumble, and they, and and, and they aren't part of this holy spiritual temple called God's people or the church. And he says there in verse 8, they disobey the word, and this was all part of God's sovereign plan to begin with. But... That is not who you are, Church of Jesus Christ. So who are we? Several descriptors here. Number one, we are a chosen race. Chosen, or as Peter calls us in chapter one, the elect. Just as Jesus is a chosen and precious living stone, rejected by men in verse four, so we also are chosen by God. And when we see passages in scripture, and they're all over the place, that clearly reveal the sovereignty of God, especially over our salvation, but really over all the creation, down to the smallest minuscule atom, then we could start getting nervous because it might start feeling like we're not really in control. And although I would honestly ask you to question, why does that make you nervous? You would rather have us in control? (laughs) We're not doing a great job, right? I would much rather have him sovereign than us sovereign. But it is a hard doctrine to wrap our minds around but what God intends for you to feel is not nervousness but love his choosing is his loving and when his love is focused on you you can't even get away from his love because if you could you would you would run away from his love that's our natural bent as human beings but he chose you as his simply because he loves you. 
You see this in a passage like Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8. These verses that we're looking at today in 1 Peter verses 9 through 10. These descriptors that he's giving to the church today are all drawn from the Old Testament descriptions of the nation of Israel. We find that we're all rooted in those strong roots of the Old Testament. And so us being a chosen race finds its roots in passages like this one in Deuteronomy. Where, where uh, Moses is speaking to the people, God's speaking to the people, for you're a holy people belonging to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be his own possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord had his heart set on you and chose you, not because you were more numerous than all the peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors. He brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the place of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So look there at verses 7 and 8. Why did the Lord in verse 7 set his love on you and choose you? Not because you were great and mighty. In fact, he says you were the fewest of all peoples. But verse 8, because the Lord loves you. The Lord had his heart set on you and chose you because he loves you. He set his love on you because he loved you. God chose you because he decided to love you, and he loves you because he loves you. That's it. Like, that's the reason. Why does God love you? Because he loves you. This, only God can do this, right? He doesn't put some kind of performance pressure on us that he says he chooses us or loves us if, because we've done these things. He sets us free to be at rest and be at peace because there's no way to reason it out. We just believe and allow ourselves to be embraced by his love. Like if you really think about it, this is the most freeing kind of love. We tell people all the time we love them and then we want to speak worth and value into who they are and what they do and, and reasons we love them. So we say, I love you because... And we list these qualities about their identity or maybe things that they do. And the unintended application of that can be as long as you continue to be that person and as long as you continue to do those things, then I will continue to love you. That's not what we mean, but that certainly can be how we feel at times. When we're hearing affirmation for good things, and maybe deep in the corners of our mind we're wondering, yeah, but what if I'm not any longer that and what if I fail at that I've got to trust you now to overlook all of that and will you will you still love me the most freeing statement we can make to the people we love as imperfect as we are is I love you because I love you it doesn't matter who you become it doesn't matter what you do I love you because you exist because you're here because we're in life together it's freeing and it's secure. I don't have to perform to keep this. It's freely given as God can only freely give love. But you might say, but what about our responsibility? That sounds reckless and wild. What about our responsibility? Well, as part of the chosen race of God's people, we are also those who have been transformed by his love. His love saves us, causes us to be born again. We saw this back in chapter 1. His spirit comes to live in us, and we respond with faith and trust and obedience. We more and more order our lives around the love of our Father, shown through his son Jesus. That's what men here by race. He says you're a chosen race. We're not talking about an ethnic group here. That's more of a modern construct. Here it means we join the chosen people of God as opposed to those who aren't the people of God. God does not punish the innocent. He is not unjust. 
The problem is none of us are innocent. None of us are righteous. The wages of sin is death. In our natural state, all we deserve is God's punishment. It's all anyone has earned because we were born with a sin nature and because we sin. Our natural bent, the only part of creation that's like this, is to shake our fist in the face of God, to bow our necks, to puff out our chest and say, no, I'm not going to do it your way. And he rightly could have condemned us all as he did the fallen angels, but he wanted us to also know his love, grace, and mercy and has and is saving millions upon millions, even though he didn't have to save any. So there's no mystery about the fact that God is sovereign over everything. Biblically, there's no mystery over the fact that we are making real choices and we'll be held accountable for our choices by God. The mystery is... Why me? Why did he choose to love me? And not that person. Maybe the literal billions in the world who are living and dying, the names of the people groups we call out, living and dying every day, who have not heard the name of Jesus yet. Yet. That's the key word. Yet. God's mobilizing his people as we're experiencing as a church and getting the gospel to those people. And so certainly individuals are living and dying every day, but for the the hope of that people group, they will hear the gospel one day, and they will believe in Jesus because all people groups will be around the throne of God one day. All of them. So, So that's yet to come. But maybe you're saying, why me and not someone much closer in proximity? This friend, this family member. Like, why does he put his love on me and not them? Again, yet, there's still hope. There's still breathing. There's still time. God is at work. Is it working you to them, to love them and share the gospel with them? But why, is it ha- why hasn't it happened yet? Why you and not them yet? Well, as of today, the ultimate answer is, I don't know. That's the mystery. I don't know. People grow up in the same house. People go to the same church. Some believe, some don't believe. Some are loved, some aren't loved. I don't know why. God sets his love on some. And some are chosen and not all are chosen. But we get to the point where we are transformed by his love. We don't know why us and not all. And there's still time for those who are still alive. And those who of us who have received this by his grace, because it's all of his grace, because we can't answer it. It's not because I'm smart enough. It's not because I figured it out. It's not because I'm a good person. It's not because I was born where I was born. The ultimate reason is I don't know. It's only by his grace. Because that's the ultimate reason, that's actually what motivates our mission. That's actually what drives us to get this gospel to more people. Because we realize there's nothing in us that deserves this. It is a free gift of his grace. In some mysterious way, I am the recipient of it. And I want to give my life so that other people will know this same, this same grace. Because it happens through his people sharing his gospel. We are a chosen race. Secondly, we are also a royal priesthood. If you got to watch some of the festivities last weekend, the coronation of the new king of England, King Charles, 2023, that might feel a little weird. Like... We still do this? 
it's got huge roots. It goes back so so many years. It's been this tradition handed down. Um, and, and certainly there's beautiful pictures of the gospel for the millions of people who watched the ceremony. But it still feels a little strange. Like, why is this done for a purely symbolic office that doesn't have real power? And certainly the royal family, I'm not going to dump on them. They do good things. They have money. They do charities. They help out people. Uh, of course, we're talking about William, not Harry, as everyone knows. But it seems as though that it's riches and wealth and fame and influence to do good things, we hope. No true ruling power. But the kingdom that we've been brought into with our king is actually the ruling power over all creation, over the entire universe. And one day when all the nations and thrones of man are memories of the past, there will be one throne and one king remaining. And we join him in that rule as priests. Not generals, not diplomats, not dignitaries, but priests, servants, who serve and shepherd and serve others. We help others connect to this one true most high God. Again, earlier we saw in in, uh, verse 5 of chapter 2, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. These spiritual sacrifices we offer is obedience. Because, we see later in verse 8, those who stumble over Christ, they stumble because they disobey the word. But we are not those who stumble over Christ, but we build our lives on Christ and it shows up in our obedience to Christ. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. Obedience flows from the transforming power of God's love that he's set on us. It flows from the born-again reality we've experienced, but it does But it does show up. It does come forth. It has to show up. Obedience to the word, obedience to Jesus and the commands of Jesus are not optional. We can't say, well, Jesus, I'll take you, but not your commands. I'm just going to say, yeah, I'm a Christian and just live however I want. That doesn't work. Never has worked, never will work. It's illogical. You, You don't love Jesus. The fruit, obedience is the fruit of an ever-transforming life, and it marks us as God's people, his royal priesthood. Like the priests in the Old Testament, if you've read through those passages, they wore all of this incredible elaborate clothing and that had all this symbolic representation. Like you knew these were the priests. They even came from one specific line of people, the Levites. In the same way, the fruits of obedience should adorn us so that we clearly show up in the world as God's people. Not by how we dress and those uh, things, silly things that some denominations have done, but the fruits of repentance, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. It shows up and marks us as God's people. His royal priesthood. Like who in all the world gives a rip about allegiance and loyalty to our king? Especially when obedience to Jesus might cause our life to get harder because the world system doesn't reward obedience to our king. We do. That's who cares. And that's who we are. Thirdly, we are a holy nation. Again, another image drawn from the Old Testament. All these realities that said about us here and and Peter have been said about the Israelites in the Old Testament. Peter is affirming what the rest of the New Testament affirms, that we've been grafted in to now share and inherit the blessings and promises given originally to Israel. We have not replaced the Jews. There's some doctrines out there that that make that case. 
God is still at work and has future plans for his people, his ethnic people as well. But he has brought the Gentiles, his people, into his family to share. And this is all an outworking of God's original promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. That from Abraham, he would make a great nation that would eventually be a blessing to all the people on the earth. This was done to Jesus through the church to all nations, tribes, languages, and tongues. And now we are brought in as a holy nation. Not nation in a geopolitical entity, but nation in the sense of a collective of people set apart as holy, distinct, separate, unique, of God, having the quality and characteristics of God among them. God gave the Israelites the law in the Old Testament so that as they moved into the land of promise, they would be distinct as the people of God in, in literally everything, what they ate, what they wore, etc., how they worshipped. The fact they worshiped one God, monotheism versus polytheism. We now, this holy nation, we live among the nations. Not just a particular land, but we're everywhere. But we still live in such a way that sets us apart as his people in all the various cultures that we live in. In other words, you and I can meet brothers and sisters from any and all cultures. And while we we have these differences of culture and language, and etc., that will always be there, The more we drill down to the core of our bond, Jesus, the more we'll find in common. And we'll find so many strong similarities in how they follow Jesus in those nations, among those people, and how we follow Jesus here. It it crosses cultures. This is the beauty of the gospel. It's not adherent to one culture. The term holy nation is not and will never be referring to what is called Christian nationalism. A growing term you'll hear more and more as we approach another election cycle. It's a very uncomfortable connection for some, not all, but for some, very uncomfortable connection between Christian nationalism and white supremacy. Incredibly evil, it must be rejected on all counts. Some are striving to make a more healthy and nuanced version of this that's distinct from white supremacy. Christians basically living out their faith, growing in influence, and using that influence as salt and light to see laws and life actually change for the good of all people so there's more justice and less injustice. That's what we've talked about for years. Live for the good of the city, Jeremiah 29 tells us. The city prospers, you prosper. Like, we, we know that. More, more the culture of life for all people in all stages of life and less and less the culture of death. And there, there could be some merit as long as it's applied to all aspects of life and not simply the platform of one particular party. Who loves to talk about the sanctity of human life as long as you're talking about abortion and not gun violence. That's just one example. But it can be talked about as the people of God who are a holy nation can influence and impact these issues of justice from the right and the left and show our very broken nation a better way forward. Fourthly, we are a people of his own possession. As we saw in chapter 1, he brought us through the, he, he bought us through the precious redeeming blood of his son Jesus. He paid for our forgiveness, our redemption through his own blood, and so now we are his people you see this further spelled out in chapter 10 of First uh, Peter 2. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are now God's people who have received God's mercy. 
And again, all we deserved was wrath, but he's chosen to love us, show mercy, give us life, make us his people. We are his. We belong to him. Like you ever in your life feel like you don't belong? You ever been in a group of people or around people or at an event and you're like, this is not my people. I do not fit in. I have to be here because it's a job maybe. It's a school. It's a family. But this does not feel like me. Or maybe because you failed and you don't feel like you belong with a group of people. Like we all have those times and situations where we don't want to, we don't want to be in those situations simply because we're around people but we feel alone. Because we don't fit in. It's one of the most isolating feelings for people. A lot of times it can be true of singles in a local church. So much of the church feels geared toward families and it become, can become a huge barrier to overcome as singles. Especially if you're out of college, to feel like you really belong and you're part of this family called the church. And certainly there is a work the Spirit of God needs to do in the heart of those who are single for you to know and really believe God does not see you as less. In fact, Paul says it's better to be single. You have more impact you can make for the kingdom of God if you're single. So consider even if God would give you the ability to remain single for the sake of the kingdom. But there's also good work we we could do as those who are not single to be hospitable and helpful and warm and inviting. You're part of the family. To not just say we want to love and care for those who are single, but to actually create a culture and atmosphere where they belong. The reality of all of these descriptions in this passage, chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, people of God's own possession, they are all descriptions of community. The people of God the corporate nature of the church. None of these are supposed to be applied to anyone who's going solo. Yes, we are all individual Christians in whom Jesus has to do work. We all will stand alone and give an account one day before God. But he has never saved us to leave us alone or go solo. And someone is not the church with them and their Bible in their deer stand or them and their Bible in their boat or them and their Bible sitting under a tree. Or those are all the examples I've heard because they mostly come from guys. But them and their Bible and other places people go. Coffee shop. How about that? That's not a church. Just one person. We all have to be growing in maturity so that when we're alone, we're being loved by him. We're enjoying communion with him. We're letting our minds and hearts continually run back to him. And so things like time in the word and time in prayer and time in silence and time in solitude, they're all important for all of that. But all of that is intended to make us stronger to help make others stronger. Listen to how Henry Nouwen put it. Compassion is the fruit of solitude and the basis of all ministry. The purification and transformation that takes place in solitude manifests themselves in compassion. What becomes visible here is that solitude molds self-righteous people into gentle, caring, forgiving people who are so deeply convinced in their own to their own great sinfulness and so fully aware of God, God's even greater mercy that life itself becomes ministry. We have a corporate calling and corporate responsibility. We aren't called to go live alone in the desert. Together we are God's people who have experienced the power of his transforming love. Married couples, singles, widows, aliens, and orphans. 
all equally a part of this community of God's people. All that, and, and all that we've seen so far is the work of God doing this in us. He's, he's made this true of us. And so the last thing is, why? What purpose? Like literally, why do you still have breath in your lungs? And the purpose, verse 9, is so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Or as the ESV puts it, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God has chosen to love us, make us his people, become this new race of people called the born again, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people of his own possession, God's people, so that all of us would become proclaimers. Proclaimers of his excellence. We proclaim in word, as we'll see later in chapter 3, verse 15, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And as we'll see next week, we will proclaim indeed, verse 12, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and glorify God on the day he visits. So this is the 30,000 foot perspective about what your life is to be about. This is true of all of us. The Bible is not going to tell you specifically where to live, what job or what career to pursue, who to marry, what school to attend. There's actually great freedom in all of that. As long as all we do, we see that the reason we live is to give our our, our lips and our lives to proclaim this one message, the excellency of Jesus. The amazingness of Jesus. Not sure that's a word. But you get it. As long as our lives are given to put the spotlight on one person, him. And sometimes we struggle with how to do this well. And we'll do all kinds of unhealthy things in an attempt to put the spotlight on Jesus. This false humility of, well, what I'm about to do is going to really stink. But it's all him anyway, not me. Like giving ourselves an excuse for performing poorly. That's a form of false humility. Another form of self-absorbed pride. Or we go to great lengths to be invisible as possible, as anonymous as possible. Sometimes we even lose our effectiveness because we're so absorbed with being anonymous and invisible. A better way of understanding it is what John Piper calls a a life of undistracting excellence. That we strive to do all that we do with excellence, but not in self-absorbed ways, but Christ-absorbed ways. Humility in its essence is self-forgetfulness. So be focused on Jesus and others. So you're not absorbed with self. You just be obedient and trust Christ to take your words and deeds and glorify him. Like don't get in bondage to the voices that will always be out there, that will question your motives, that will condemn you, that will throw arrows at you. Be at peace with where Jesus has your heart and where those who really know you, the people that matter, not the voices that don't know you, the people who really know you are affirming, yeah, you're in a good place. And you know that they love you enough to tell you, no, you're not in a good place. This doesn't need to happen. We proclaim the excellencies of so many things. Good food, good drink, good entertainment. I mean, if you've got five minutes, I will tell you about the excellencies of a Taylor Swift concert. It's amazing. Craziest thing I've ever been, been to. But all of those things are lesser. Yeah, even Taylor. Sorry. The ultimate is Jesus. He is the one true, most high, excellent one. 
And it's a constant question and battle that we need to engage. How much can we enjoy and proclaim the goodness of created things in service to proclaiming what is most excellent, the creator? Is it okay to enjoy creation? Yes. God has made things beautiful and delicious and delightful. Not for us to be robots, but for us to enjoy because he's a good dad who loves his kids. So it's okay to enjoy creation. But the enjoyment of creation is intended to help us enjoy him. It's got to lead to an enjoyment of him as ultimate. And we get lost when we let our joy terminate on creation and make creation ultimate. That's a lot to unpack there. I could go 15 more minutes. And, you know, we're going to be late anyway, so just kidding. A lot to unpack and think through. Like, okay, what exactly does that look like? Like, I, I think, like, one thing, I'll just say this. One thing, I think, it's best to enjoy creation and community. I, I don't know how much enjoyment there is of creation, created things, when it's just solo all the time. This is just for me, just for me, just for me. There's a place for that. But I think most of the enjoyment of creation should be in community with others. So you love sports? Okay, watch sports with others. You love good food? Get together with others and enjoy good food. You love good drink? Go out and have good drinks with people or have them over and make good drinks. You love good shows? Watch shows with others. It, it's probably never super healthy if it's just you and you alone all the time. Okay. But all the good we see and enjoy is ultimately supposed to help us proclaim the excellencies of Jesus. And maybe part of what can help us manage this better is to see how the context of this proclamation, we proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into light. Yes, this, this can be to fellow members of the chosen race, the royal priesthood, the holy nation. So brother and sister, let's remember how excellent Jesus is. Yes, we need to do that. We're edifying one another. But given the context of 1 Peter, it seems like this is more of a call to those, to, uh, of us to go to those who are still in darkness, who need the light. Peter was writing to believers, he said in, in verse 1, chapter 1, the chosen living as exiles dispersed in all those places. In other words, we are created and called as his chosen race, still in this world, to live among those still in darkness, to help call them into the light. Because we have been transformed, and we speak and show through our lives the excellencies of this Jesus who has and is changing us. Not because we're putting ourselves on the pedestal as some perfect representation of Jesus, but actually because we're putting him on the pedestal and being open about how we still need Jesus, how we're flawed and broken and sinful. God has made us this people so that we will give our lives to help others become his people. And in the beautiful providence of God, it starts at home. You already have people you live with to do this with. So think about Mother's Day, moms. God has blessed you with your first disciples. They come into the world. Yeah, they're amazing, beautiful, cute, all that good stuff, but deeply sinful and in desperate need of a Savior. And moms, because Jesus has made this true of you to your kids, you can now declare the excellencies of Jesus. You can show them and share with them how great Jesus is in the hope that he will call them out of their own darkness into his light. But outside of the home, we all can arrange our lives in ways that help us interact with those far from God. We eat meals with those far from God, prayer walk your neighborhoods, ask the Spirit to open doors to relationships. If you're in a neighborhood, you can walk in. 
shop in places, go to gyms, eat in restaurants, get to know the people in your everyday life that God's given you who are far from him and begin to see them as those who need to hear from you the excellencies of Jesus. And we, of course, do this together, never alone, in community. Even if you're going alone, like you go to the gym at like crazy people at 5 in the morning, so you, you're going alone. There's nobody who's willing to get up with you and go that early because we're normal. Um, you're, there are other people in your life who know that you're doing that and are praying for you as you go, that you would represent and make Jesus known at the gym. We have to go together. Alone, we will fail and we will quit, guaranteed. Together, we will also fail, but by his grace, we won't quit. We'll make mistakes, we'll learn, we'll grow, we'll continue to engage. But this is why we are structured the way we are structured as a church. We don't fill your lives up with ministry inside this building and tell you three or four times a week, keep coming back to this building, come back to this building. We've lessened all of that so that you're freed up to go be his disciples in the everyday stuff of life. But do it as missional communities and do it as DNA groups with the accountability and the encouragement that we need in this shared mission. So a few questions of reflection that you can discuss this week in your missional community gatherings or in your DNA groups. If your DNA group is not meeting, you can do it in group text. So be creative. Number one, how does it make you feel to know God has chosen you because he loves you? To save you and make you part of his people. And if you struggle to feel his love, like why? Why do you think you struggle to feel loved by him? Like James and I were encouraged, James Sharp and I were encouraged a few weeks ago, this summer retreat went on, just to the, the reality of experiencing the love of your Father in heaven. Do you know how much you're loved by him? Do you feel the love of your Father? Are you living in light of how adored you are by him what feelings secondly do you experience being part of a community that's described in verses 9 through 10 what does it feel like to be a part of this community of people and what would you like your experience to be in the community of the local church and how is the spirit leading you to get you there and then thirdly name a one to three people in your life right now who are far from God who are you are pursuing to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus to pray for them. Share their names with your DNA group so they can encourage you and pray for you as you pursue them. And if you don't have one to three names of people in your life that you're pursuing who are far from God, then talk to your community about how you can reorder your life to begin to be around people who are far from God. Just begin to ask the Spirit of God, help me to see. In my job, in my neighborhood, where I shop, eat, work, play, who are the people that are already in my life that are far from you, that you want me to begin to pray for and begin to pursue for the gospel. Could be old friends you reconnected with from high school. Could be, could be anybody. But God has definitely intentionally put you in the lives of people that you can pursue with the gospel. So let me pray. Father, thank you for the reality of Jesus and his loving, transforming power of his gospel. Thank you for how so many in this room have experienced that and are enjoying that. Help us to continue to enjoy that as we share this meal, as we sing songs and pray prayers and read scripture. Uh, we don't want to just engage with you in our minds. We want to engage deeply with you in our hearts. We want to feel deeply your love. 
and your affirmation and your joy and your hope. We are all bringing with us all kinds of things that make that hard. Our minds are so distracted. Our lives are so busy. We're so beat down. We're so wounded. There's so many reasons why it's hard, Jesus, and we pray you would break through all of that today so that your people are loved by you. We feel your love. And then we go out the rest of this week and order our lives, organize our lives so that others may feel your love through us. Others may hear of your love. Others may see your love as we declare the excellencies of Jesus. Thank you for calling us out of darkness into light. And I pray for anyone in this room who is, is making that journey, maybe even today, like today could be the day of their salvation, as they realize they are a sinner and trust in Jesus for salvation, that, that you would save, you would love, you would transform by the power of your word. Do all these things because of your great love. In Jesus' name, amen.